Just a quick bit of housekeeping before we start the episode. Uh, I'd like for everybody to visit my website, which is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. And you can check out all my links there to my Instagram, to my YouTube, to my Etsy store. You are listening to Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn Podcast. Expand your mind and keep it love. Welcome back to episode 101 of the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. Today in the podcast, we are going to delve into a subject that is kind of becoming my uh, my love right now, and that's ancient Greek philosophy. You know, I, I get into a lot of the Eastern philosophy and the Buddhism and the Hinduism and the Tao and all that stuff, which is great stuff, and it's that's my shit, and I know it. But as you know, you need to expand and and keep studying and enlarging your sphere of knowledge and education and understanding. And again, that's what's precipitating me to develop this love for this Greek philosophy. I love it. It's amazing. And I see, especially with the Stoicism, I see a lot of tie-ins between the Stoicism and the Eastern, especially the Taoist philosophy. They have a really strong tie-in. Very, very much nature-based, removing the ego, observing nature, which which is pretty cool. So, um, we're going to get into the foundations of Western philosophy. And when I mention the name Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, we all know those names. We've heard of Plato's Republic, and we're kind of familiar with these names because they're just epic, epic names and epic philosophers of our time. But Believe it or not, Socrates was not really the first philosopher. And as in all things, when you want to get a deeper understanding, you want to look at the origins of whatever you're studying and then follow it through. See who the first dude to do it. Like, you know, a lot of people can play guitar like Hendrix, right? Sure. You know, you get guys out there, they, they kind of throw down like Hendrix, but Hendrix was the first dude to do it. You know, that that came from him. So if he didn't play that way, the people would not be playing that style of guitar today the way he did so you want to look for like the first dude or the origins of whatever you're looking into. And when you look into philosophy, I'm going to grab my, forgive me, I got my notes here. Again, guys, this is going to be on YouTube. So you check it out on the YouTube channel because it's going to be both the podcast and the YouTube. So whenever I can do it, sometimes I might not be able to do both, but I'm shooting for that now. So the first uh, first man to, to, to conduct philosophy or to, to, to participate or to be active in philosophy was Thylias of Miletus, which is uh, from Anatolia, uh, Ionia, Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey. At that time, that was a province, that whole coast of Turkey was, across the Aegean Sea from Athens, was a suburb or a territory of Greece, of Athens, just as was Sicily. You know, you know, they have those Greek names like Syracuse and such. So, Thylias of Miletus was the first guy to philosophize, and he was born in 624 BC till 546 BC. And his thing was the a thing that they called Archi. And Archi was like the philosopher's stone, the one thing that tied everything else together, like spiritual, material, metaphysical, you know, the whole like a philosopher's stone deal. And that was what the Archi was. And they were searching for the Archi, and Thylias said that the Archi was water. And he had a whole lot of explanations, which when you kind of think about it, it makes sense. In addition to Thylias, there was an additional, they call them the seven sages of Greece. And these were what they call pre-Socratic philosophers, before Socrates. 
And again, they were all from the same region of Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, which then was Greece. And uh, okay, I'm going from my notes here. So these uh, seven sages of Greece, it's including Socrates. So it's Socrates, Chilon, Pittacus, Periander, Silbulius, uh, Bais, Thales, and Solon. And Thales is the guy that I was just talking about. Plato actually, um, Arist no, Socrates and Plato actually do acknowledge uh, Thales in their writings also as him being like the first guy to throw down with the philosophy. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to go through a list of pre-Socratic philosophers all the way into, uh, you know, Socrates and then a little bit beyond him and just hit you with some names. Most of them you probably never heard, but you should kind of jot them down, uh, expand your mind, as you know. So the first one is Thylius of Miletus, again, 624 BC to 546 BC, the Archie Ward and the whole nine. And then he was, uh, Thylius was a teacher of Anaximander, again from Turkey, uh, 609 BC to 547 BC. And they were getting into things like atoms and, and uh, again, the Archie and all that stuff like that, questioning life and the connection between all things. The next is, it's not Alexander, but Anaximenes, uh, 585 BC to 528 BC. Uh, and those three were kind of lumped together. I believe Thylius was the teacher of both Alexander and Alexamenes. He was their teacher. And they were really on very similar studies. You got Pythagoras with his theorem. He was born 570 BC till 496 BC. He was a mathematician and he believed that life could be expressed as a number. That's deep. That's some deep shit. Really cool shit. And then, uh, and I give his, he was born in 570. Then you have Heraclitus, who was born in 535 uh, till uh, 475 BC. And he was into the dialectic, which is some technical philosophical terms. I believe it means to speak and address things in a certain way, dialectic. Check it out. Look it up. And then you got Parmenides. I love these names. Uh, he was born in 515 BC till 450 BC, and he was a student of Xenophonus, uh, and he was the teacher of Zeno of, Zeno of Elia, okay? Um, then you got Protagoras, not Pythagoras, but Protagoras, 481 BC to 420 BC. Uh, and he his thing was, man is the measure of all things. That's like a really famous saying. Man is not the measure of all things. God and nature are, but... Okay. And then you got Zeno of Ilya. And he, he again was into dialectics. And he was four, born in 490 to 430. You know, this stuff all goes in reverse, guys. This is BC. Then you got Socrates, 469 through 399 BCE. And we all know Socrates is the father of modern philosophy. Then you got Plato, uh, 428 BCE to 348 BCE. And you got Aristotle, who's the student of Plato. And Aristotle was born in 384 BCE till 322. Then you got Xenophon. He was a historian, a soldier, a mercenary, and a student of Socrates. Xenophon was born in 427 BCE till 355. These are all important names, guys. Um, you got Zeno of Sidium which is modern-day Cyprus, and he is the founder of Stoic philosophy. 
He was born in 333 BC till 264 BC. He was born in Cyprus, but you know, as all uh, really smart people in those days, you know, like Athens was like the New York of its day. So any really talented people from that region, they would instantly like go to Athens or one of those major cities. You got Epicurus, who was born in 341 BC uh, to 270 BC, and he was the founder of Epicureanism, which Epic, Epicurus, so Epicureanism, which is like, I don't want to say hedonism, but it's like just enjoy life and just seek good in life and pleasure and warmth, which is kind of the opposite of the Stoicism from Zeno of Sidium. Zeno was like, you know, when, and it's almost like samurai, like, when you're at your height of happiness and everything's going well, you know, meditate, meditate upon a horrendous, you know, incident or something happening to you just briefly so that you can have a balance in life and not get too cozy with yourself. So they're kind of opposites. You know, the Epicureanism is to enjoy and everything is good. Wine, dance, singing. And Zeno was more like, you know, look out for that rainy day. And you know, again, realize within the self, the Stoicism is so so profound, man. I, I, I'm i digging the Stoicism, and I'm noticing it's getting really popular these days. Listen, I'm listening to a couple of really cool uh, Stoic podcasts, too. I suggest you guys do the same. So we got into Epicurus. Then you get into Seneca. Now, Seneca was born uh, 4 BCE until 65, the year 65 uh, AD. So he was born just before... The birth of Jesus, you know, right around the year 4 BC. Seneca, Roman, but he was actually a Spaniard and he migrated, you know, from an affluent family born in Spain and then migrated to Rome and became a Roman Stoic philosopher. One of the most famous uh, Stoic philosophers, also Seneca. Truly profound. The thing with Seneca, they said that he didn't live anywhere near what he taught. He was kind of bummy and all shitty and everything like that. And lazy and like didn't eat that well but he was teaching a lot of these teachings um but his teachings are so profound and he even admitted it himself that he doesn't adhere to his teachings as much as he should so you have seneca then you have epictetus which is 55 uh a.d through 135 a.d and epictetus is another uh from anatolia also epictetus very very famous and he's also a stoic epictetus and then obviously you have marcus aurelius uh from you know the movie gladiator and let's see marcus aurelius was born in going through my notes here marcus aurelius was born in 161 boom got my facts tight so yeah that's kind of a timeline of of philosophy so you've never heard that name thales before and you should know that name look look him up it's interesting because you see how this philosophy is formulated you know really really the process it's not just the actual facts that you get but you know it's also the process you go through because that same process you lose you used to create and grow uh can be used in, in any of the disciplines that you're into because it's learn it's like i say learning how to learn so that's a quick timeline that's a quick timeline of um philosophers and pre-socratic philosophers um so again, it's so important in our time, people, they're getting swept up into this negative energy, into this negative space, into this fear control mechanism, this matrix that they're putting out here for us. And this fear generates power for them and it suppresses us and it keeps us from working together and living self-realized lives the way we were intended to by God. 
This is all planned out. And, and, and I must say, just people today are just so stupid. I received an email from some dude in Europe, I, I, I believe in England, London, and he was telling me, um, we were discussing how people are just so unaware of, like the ostrich with the head in the ground, you know, they're just so unaware of what's happening to them with this Brexit and everything that's going on. So it's sad, man. We need to really wake up and start getting into, you know, you could listen to your you know, trap music or whatever you're into, but dude, take some time, take a couple of hours a week and just start, start getting into knowledge and teaching yourself things that are going to expand you into where you need to go. I mean, you know, in life, you know, you can do your thinking or you can have somebody do your thinking for you. And that's basically what's taking place right now. People are, have given up just custody of their own faculties and consciousness and just have plugged into this matrix server which is really frightening the flip side of that that i'm seeing is there's a lot of us that are really waking up right now too you know uh, you know i started this podcast a year ago and i'm hearing like a lot of other people pretty much doing exactly the same thing i'm seeing it on instagram and different places where it's like a hundredth monkey type deal and i'm sure you've all heard me speak on the hundredth monkey you can look it up so really interesting this this greek philosophy um there's there's some other terms that i'm going to hit you with too and that's platonism and uh, aristotelianism uh stoicism epicurism and skepticism these are the five major schools of greek philosophy uh the last one the fifth one skepticism i know it's a school but it's more like just being skeptic so the major schools really are platonism aristotelianism Stoicism and Epicureanism. Uh, Platonism is Plato believed that there was a grand scheme or like a third unseen outside entity, a third realm, like spirit metaphysics, you know, and he believed that, you know, you had what you could see on this plane here, but there was also that outside element. You know, we had our inside world, our outside world, and then this third, this third realm, this outside realm that had heavy influence on us. That was, that was, um, actually, no, that wasn't Plato. That was, um, Socrates. I apologize. Socrates believed in the third realm. Um, Platonism really is more like analytical, biological, scientific and such. And it had a tremendous influence on the Muslim world actually back then. The Western world did, did not become aware of Aristotle until around the year 1200 when some Muslim scholars kind of brought it over to them because they, they had all of his writings and they just kind of, the West was not aware of that writing until around the year 1200 that it came back to them. So you have uh, Aristotelianism, which again is like biological, scientific. You have Stoicism, which is more like a natural way of living, being more realistic, non-emotional. Don't get too high up. Don't get too low down. Um, you, if you have no control over something, don't waste your time worrying about it. Only deal with things that you can and minimize your desires, minimize all of the BS in your life and live to be like realized. It's it's really very Taoist, this whole um, stoicism. And then you have Epicureanism, which is just to enjoy life, eat, drink, be merry, happy and everything like that. And rationalizing that and then uh, you know skepticism which we all know is when a person is skeptical negative um 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to proceed to play a couple of clips for you guys um, on the actually Thales, Thales, a little clip on him and uh, a clip on the Platonism, Aristotelianism and Stoicism. So we can get into that. So uh, just to uh, check it out. The Pre-Socratics Lecture 2, The Milesians. In the last lecture we introduced the Pre-Socratics, noted why they are significant, and explained the difference between mythology and philosophy. In this lecture we will discuss the earliest Pre-Socratics, Thales, Anaximander, and Anaximenes, who are widely considered the first philosophers in Western civilization. All three philosophers lived in the city of Miletus in the 6th century BC, and for this reason are referred to as the Milesians. Miletus was located in Ionia on the western coast of Asia Minor, or what today is western Turkey. The Milesians were physiologists, as they attempted to provide a rational account, or logos, of nature, the Greek word for nature being physis. It is evident from these that Socrates was a man of singular character and intelligence. He was imbued with a passion for intellectual honesty and moral integrity rare for his or any other age. He insistently sought answers to questions that had not before been asked, attempted to undermine conventional assumptions and beliefs to provoke more careful thinking about ethical matters, and tirelessly compelled both himself and those with whom he conversed to seek a deeper understanding of what constituted a good life. His words and deeds embodied and binding conviction that the act of rational self-criticism could free the human mind from the bondage of false opinion. Because of his dedication to the task of discovering wisdom and drawing it forth from others, Socrates neglected his private affairs, spending all his time instead in earnest discussion with his fellow citizens. Unlike the sophists, he did not charge for his instruction. Although intimate with the elite of Athens, he was altogether indifferent to material wealth and conventional standards of success. Socrates gave the impression of being a man unusually at one with himself, though his personal character was full of paradoxical contrasts. Disarmingly humble, yet presumptuously confident, puckishly witty, yet morally urgent, engaging and gregarious, yet solitary and contemplative, Socrates was above all a man consumed by a passion for truth. As a young man, Socrates appears to have studied the natural science of his time with some enthusiasm, examining the various contemporary philosophies concerned with speculative analysis of the physical world. Eventually, however, he found these unsatisfying. The welter of conflicting theories brought more confusion than clarity, and their explanations of the universe solely in terms of material causation, ignoring the evidence of purposive intelligence in the world, seemed to him inadequate. Such theories, he judged, were neither conceptually coherent nor morally useful. He therefore turned from physics and cosmology to ethics and logic. How one should live, and how to think clearly about how one should live, became his overriding concern. As Cicero would declare three centuries later, Socrates called down philosophy from the skies and implanted it in the cities and homes of men.
Such a shift was indeed already reflected in the ideas of the sophists, who also resembled Socrates in their concern with education, language, rhetoric, and argument. But the character of Socrates' moral and intellectual aspirations was sharply different. The sophists offered to teach others how to live a successful life in a world which all moral standards were conventions and all human knowledge was relative. Socrates believed such an educational philosophy was both intellectually misconceived and morally detrimental. In opposition to the sophist view, Socrates saw his own task as that of finding a way to a knowledge that transcended mere opinion, to inform a morality that transcended mere convention. At an earlier date in a young philosopher's life, the oracle of Apollo at Delphi had declared that no man was wiser than Socrates. Seeking, as he later put it with characteristic irony, to disprove the oracle, Socrates assiduously examined the beliefs and thinking of all who considered themselves wise, concluding that he was indeed wiser than all others, for he alone recognized his own ignorance. But while the sophists had held genuine knowledge to be unattainable, Socrates held rather that genuine knowledge had not yet been achieved. His repeated demonstrations of human ignorance, both his own and that of others, were intended to elicit not intellectual despair, but rather intellectual humility. The discovery of ignorance was for Socrates the beginning rather than the end of the philosophical task, for only through that discovery could one begin to overcome those received assumptions that obscured the true nature of what it was to be a human being. Socrates conceived it his personal mission to convince others of their ignorance, so that they might better search for a knowledge of how life should be best lived. In Socrates' view, any attempt to foster true success and excellence in human life had to take account of the innermost reality of a human being, his soul, or psyche. Perhaps on the basis of his own highly developed sense of individual selfhood and self-control, Socrates brought to the Greek mind a new awareness of the central significance of the soul, establishing it for the first time as the seat of the individual waking consciousness and of the moral and intellectual character. <coughs> he affirmed the Delphic motto, Know thyself, for he believed that it was only through self-knowledge, through an understanding of one's own psyche and its proper condition, that one could find genuine happiness. All human beings seek happiness by their very nature. And happiness, Socrates taught, is achieved through living the kind of life that best serves the nature of the soul. Happiness is the consequence not of physical or external circumstances, of wealth or power or reputation, but of living a life that is good for the soul. Yet to live a genuinely good life, one must know what is the nature and essence of the good. Otherwise, one will be acting blindly, on the basis of a mere convention or expediency, calling something good or virtuous whenever it conforms to popular opinion or serves the pleasures of the moment. By contrast, Socrates argued, if a man does know what is truly good, what is beneficial for him in the deepest sense, then he will naturally and inevitably act in a good manner. Knowing what is good will necessarily cause one to act on that basis. For no man deliberately chooses that which he knows would harm himself. It is only when he mistakes an illusory good for a genuine good that he falls into erroneous conduct. No one ever does wrong knowingly, for it is the very nature of the good that when it is known, it is desired. In this sense, Socrates held virtue as knowledge. A truly happy life is a life of right action directed according to reason. The key to human happiness, therefore, 
is the development of a rational moral character. But for a person to discover what is genuine virtue, hard questions must be asked. To know virtue, one has to discover the common element in all virtuous acts, that is, the essence of virtue. One has to take apart, analyze, test the worth of every statement about the nature of virtue in order to find its true character. It is not enough to cite examples of various kinds of virtuous actions and say that this is virtue itself, for such an answer does not reveal the single essential quality within all the examples that make them genuine instances of virtue. So also with goodness, justice, courage, piety, beauty. Socrates criticized the sophist belief that such terms were ultimately only words, mere names for currently established human conventions. Words could indeed distort and deceive, giving the impression of truth when actually they lack solid foundation. But words could also point, as to a precious invisible mystery, to something genuine and enduring. To find one's way to that genuine reality was the task confronting the philosopher. It was in the course of pursuing this task that Socrates developed his famous dialectical form of argument that would become fundamental to the character and evolution of the Western mind. Reasoning through rigorous dialogue as a method of intellectual investigation intended to expose false beliefs and elicit truth. Socrates' characteristic strategy was to take up a sequence of questions with whomever he was in discussion, relentlessly analyzing one by one the implications of the answers in such a way as to bring out the flaws and inconsistencies inherent in a given belief or statement. Attempts to define the essence of something were rejected one after another as being either too wide or too narrow, or as missing the mark altogether. Often it happened that such an analysis ended in complete perplexity, with Socrates' fellow discussants feeling as if they had been numbed by a stingray. Yet at such times it was clear that philosophy for Socrates was concerned less with knowing the right answers than with the strenuous attempt to discover those answers. Philosophy was a process, a discipline, a lifelong quest. To practice philosophy in the Socratic manner was continually to subject one's thoughts to the criticism of reason in earnest dialogue with others. Genuine knowledge was not something that could simply be received from another second-hand-like purchased commodity, as with the sophists, but was rather a personal achievement, one only at the cost of constant intellectual struggle and self-critical reflection. The life not tested by criticism, Socrates declared, is not worth living. Because of his incessant questioning of others, however, Socrates was not universally popular and his active encouraging of a critical skepticism among his pupils was regarded by some as a dangerously unsettling influence which undermined the proper authority of tradition and the state. In his painstaking effort to find certain knowledge, Socrates had spent much of his life outdoing the sophists at their home game. But ironically, it was with the sophists that Socrates was classed when, in the political unstable period of Athens following disastrous Peloponnesian War, Two citizens accused him of impiety and of corrupting the young. Caught in a backlash against a number of political figures, some of whom had once been in his circle, Socrates was sentenced to death. In such a situation, it would have been customary to propose an alternative punishment of exile, and this was probably what his accusers desired. But Socrates refused at every stage of the trial to compromise his principles 
and rejected all efforts to escape or modify the consequences of the verdict. He affirmed the rightness of the life he had led, even if his mission to awaken others now brought him death, which he did not fear, but rather welcomed as a portal to eternity. Cheerfully drinking the poison hemlock, Socrates became an unreluctant martyr to the ideal of philosophy that he had so long championed. Athens 2,400 years ago. It's a compact place. Only about a quarter of a million people live here. There are fine baths, theatres, temples, shopping arcades and gymnasiums. It's warm for more than half the year. This is also home to the world's first true and probably greatest philosopher, Plato. Born into a prominent and wealthy family in the city, Plato devoted his life to one goal, helping people to reach a state of what he termed eudaimonia, or fulfilment. Plato is often confused with Socrates. Socrates was an older friend who taught Plato a lot but didn't write any books. Plato wrote lots of them, 36, all dialogues, beautifully crafted scripts of imaginary discussions in which Socrates is always allotted a starring role, among them the Republic, the Symposium, the Laws, the Mino and the Apology. Plato had four big ideas for making life more fulfilled. First big idea, think more. We rarely give ourselves time to think carefully and logically about our lives and how to lead them. Sometimes we just go along with what the Greeks called doxa, or popular opinions. In the 36 books he wrote, Plato showed this common sense to be riddled with errors, prejudice and superstition. Fame is great. Follow your heart. Money is the key to a good life. The problem is, popular opinions edge us towards the wrong values, careers and relationships. Plato's answer is, know yourself. It means doing a special kind of therapy, philosophy. Subjecting your ideas to examination rather than acting on impulse. If you strengthen your self-knowledge, you don't get so pulled around by feelings. Plato compared the role of our feelings to being dragged dangerously along by a group of wild horses. In honour of his mentor and friend Socrates, this kind of examination is called a Socratic discussion. You can have it with yourself or, ideally, with another person who isn't trying to catch you out, but wants to help you clarify your own ideas. Second big idea. Let your lover change you. That sounds weird if you think that love means finding someone who wants you just the way you are. In a symposium, Plato's play about a dinner party where a group of friends drink too much and get talking about love, sex and relationships, Plato says, true love is admiration. In other words, the person you need to get together with should have very good qualities, which you yourself lack. Let's say they should be really brave or organised or warm and sincere. By getting close to this person, you can become a little like they are. The right person for us helps us grow to our full potential. For Plato, in a good relationship, a couple shouldn't love each other exactly as they are right now. They should be committed to educating each other and to enduring the stormy passages this inevitably involves. Each person should want to seduce the other into becoming a better version of themselves. 3. Decode the message of beauty. Everyone pretty much likes beautiful things, but Plato was the first to ask why do we like them? He found a fascinating reason. Beautiful objects are whispering important truths to us about the good life. 
We find things beautiful when we unconsciously sense in them qualities we need but are missing in our lives. Gentleness, harmony, balance, peace, strength. Beautiful objects, therefore, have a really important function. They help to educate our souls. Ugliness is a serious matter too. It parades dangerous and damaged characteristics in front of us. It makes it harder to be wise, kind and calm. Plato sees art as therapeutic. It's the duty of poets and painters and nowadays novelists, TV producers and designers to help us to live good lives. 4. Reform society. Plato spent a lot of time thinking how the government and society should ideally be. He was the world's first utopian thinker. In this, he was inspired by Athens's great rival, Sparta. This was a city-sized machine for turning out great soldiers. Everything the Spartans did, how they raised their children, how their economy was organized, whom they admired, how they had sex, what they ate, was tailored to that one goal. And Sparta was hugely successful from a military point of view. But that wasn't Plato's concern. He wanted to know, how could a society get better at producing not military power, but fulfilled people? In his book, The Republic, Plato identifies a number of changes that should be made. Athenian society was very focused on the rich, like the louche aristocrat Alcibiades and sports celebrities like the boxer Milo of Croton. Plato wasn't impressed. It really matters who we admire, because celebrities influence our outlook, ideas and conduct, and bad heroes give glamour to flaws of character. Plato therefore wanted to give Athens new celebrities, replacing the current crop with ideally wise and good people he called guardians, models for everyone's good development. These people would be distinguished by their record of public service, their modesty and simple habits, their dislike of the limelight, and their wide and deep experience. They would be the most honoured and admired people in society. He also wanted to end democracy in Athens. He wasn't crazy. He just observed how few people think properly before they vote, and therefore we get very substandard rulers. He didn't want to replace democracy with a horrid dictatorship, but he wanted to prevent people from voting until they'd started to think rationally. That is, until they'd become philosophers. Otherwise, government would just be a kind of mob rule. To help the process, Plato started a school, the Academy, in Athens, which lasted a good 300 years. There, pupils learned not just maths and spelling, but also how to be good and kind. His ultimate goal was that politicians should become philosophers. The world will not be right, he said, until kings become philosophers or philosophers kings. Aristotle was born around 384 BC in the ancient Greek kingdom of Macedonia, where his father was the royal doctor. He grew up to be arguably the most influential philosopher ever, with modest nicknames like the master and simply the philosopher. His first big job was tutoring Alexander the Great, who soon after went out and conquered the known world. Aristotle then headed off to Athens, worked with Plato for a bit, then branched out on his own. He founded a little school called the Lyceum, French secondary schools, the lycée, are named in honour of this venture. He liked to walk about while teaching and discussing ideas. His followers were nicknamed Peripatetics, the Wanderers. His many books are actually lecture notes. Aristotle was fascinated by how many things actually work. How does a chick grow in an egg? How do squid reproduce? Why does a plant grow well in one place and hardly at all in another? 
and most importantly, what makes a human life and a whole society go well? For Aristotle, philosophy was about practical wisdom. Here are four big philosophical questions he answered. One, what makes people happy? In the Nicomachean Ethics, the book got its name because it was edited by his son Nicomachus, Aristotle set himself the task of identifying the factors that lead people to have a good life, or not. He suggested that good and successful people all possess distinct virtues and proposed that we should get better at identifying what these are so that we can nurture them in ourselves and honour them in others. Aristotle zeroed in on 11 virtues. Courage, temperance, liberality, magnificence, magnanimity, pride, patience, truthfulness, wittiness, friendliness, modesty. Aristotle also observed that every virtue seems to be bang in the middle of two vices. It occupies what he termed the golden mean between two extremes of character. For example, in Book 4 of his Ethics, under the charming title of Conversational Virtues, Wit, Buffoonery and Boorishness, Aristotle looks at ways people are better or worse at conversation. Knowing how to have a good conversation is one of the key ingredients of the good life Aristotle recognised. Some people go wrong because they lack a subtle sense of humour. That's the bore, someone useless for any kind of social intercourse because he contributes nothing and takes offence at everything. But others carry humour to excess. The buffoon cannot resist a joke, sparing neither himself nor anybody else, provided that he can raise a laugh and saying things that a man of taste would never dream of saying. So, the virtuous person is in the golden mean in this area, witty but tactful. A particularly fascinating moment is when Aristotle draws up a table of too little, too much and just right around the whole host of virtues. We can't change our behaviour in any of these areas just at the drop of a hat, but change is possible, eventually. Moral goodness, says Aristotle, is the result of habit. It takes time, practice, encouragement. So, Aristotle thinks, people who lack virtue should be understood as unfortunate rather than wicked. What they need isn't scolding or being thrown into prison, but better teachers and more guidance. 2. What's art for? The blockbuster art at the time was tragedy. Athenians watched gory plays at community festivals in huge open-air theatres. Aeschylus, Euripides and Sophocles were household names. Aristotle wrote a how-to-write-great-plays manual, The Poetics. It's packed with great tips. For example, make sure to use peripatia, a change in fortune, when for the hero things go from great to awful. In Titanic, Leonardo DiCaprio gets Kate Winslet, great, then they hit the iceberg, awful. And anagnoresis, a moment of dramatic revelation when suddenly the hero works out their life is a catastrophe. But what is tragedy actually for? What's the point of a whole community coming together to watch horrible things happening to lead characters, like Oedipus in the play by Sophocles, who by accident kills his father, gets married to his mother, finds out he's done these things, and gouges out his own eyes in remorse and despair? Aristotle's answer is catharsis, which is Greek for catharsis. Catharsis is a kind of cleaning. You get rid of bad stuff. In this case, cleaning up our emotions, specifically our confusions around the feelings of fear and pity. We've got natural problems here. We're hard-hearted. We don't give pity where it's deserved. And we're prone to either exaggerated fears or not getting frightened enough. Tragedy reminds us that terrible things can befall decent people, including ourselves. A small flaw can lead to a whole life unravelling. So we should have more compassion, pity, for those whose actions go disastrously wrong. We need to be collectively retaught these crucial truths on a regular basis. The task of art, as Aristotle saw it, is to make profound truths about life stick in our minds. 3. What are friends for? In books 8 and 9 of the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle identifies three different kinds of friendship. 
There's friendship that comes about when each person is seeking fun. Their chief interest is in their own pleasure and the opportunity of the moment, which the other person provides. Then there are friendships that are really strategic acquaintances. They take pleasure in each other's company only in so far as they have hopes of advantage of it. Then there's the true friend. Not someone who's just like you, but someone who isn't you, but about whom you care as much as you care about yourself. The sorrows of a true friend are your sorrows. Their joys are yours. It makes you more vulnerable, should anything befall this person, but it's hugely strengthening too. You're relieved from the too small orbit of your own thoughts and worries. You expand into the life of another. Together you become larger, cleverer, more resilient, more fair-minded. You share virtues and cancel out each other's defects. Friendship teaches us what we ought to be. It's quite literally the best part of life. 4. How can ideas cut through in a busy world? Like a lot of people, Aristotle was struck by the fact that the best argument doesn't always win the debate or the battle. He wanted to know why this happens and what we can do about it. He had lots of opportunity for observations. In Athens, lots of decisions were made in public meetings, often in the Agora, the town square. Orators would vie with one another to sway popular opinion. Aristotle plotted the ways audiences and individuals are influenced by many factors that don't strictly engage with logic or the facts of the case. It's maddening, and many serious people, especially Plato, can't stand it. They avoid the marketplace and populist debate. Aristotle was more ambitious. He invented the art of what we still today call rhetoric, the art of getting people to agree with you. He wanted thoughtful, serious and well-intentioned people to learn how to be persuasive, to reach those who don't agree already. He makes some timeless points. You have to recognise, acknowledge and soothe people's fears. You have to see the emotional side of the issue. Is someone's pride on the line? Are they feeling embarrassed? And edge around it accordingly. You have to make it funny because attention spans are short. And you might have to use illustrations and examples to make your point come alive. We're keen students of Aristotle. Today, philosophy doesn't sound like the most practical activity. Maybe that's because we've not paid enough attention recently to Aristotle. This is a film about Stoicism and why you need more of it in your life because, as people seldom tell you, but we will, quietly. Stoicism was a philosophy that flourished for 480 years in ancient Greece and Rome and was popular with everyone from slaves to the aristocracy because, unlike so much philosophy, it was helpful. Helpful when we panic, want to give up, despair and rage at existence. We still honour this philosophy whenever we think of someone as brave and without perhaps quite knowing why, call them Stoic. There are two great philosophers of Stoicism. The first is the Roman writer and tutor to Nero, Seneca. He lived between AD 4 and AD 65. That's right, tutor to Nero, the infamous dictator who slept with his own mother, raped young boys and just because he felt like it, asked his old tutor, Seneca, to commit suicide in front of his own family. And our other guide to Stoicism is the kind and magnanimous Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, AD 121-180, who was forced to spend most of his reign on the edges of the empire, fighting off invincible Germanic hordes, but found time to write one of the greatest works of philosophy, the Meditations, in his tent at night. There are two problems Stoicism can help us with in particular. The first is anxiety. When you're feeling anxious about something, most people are maddening. They believe it's their duty to cheer you up. 
However intelligent they might otherwise be, they say things like, it'll be okay, don't worry, even cheer up. The Stoics were appalled. They hated any kind of consolation that aims to give the listener hope. Hope is the opium of the emotions and must be stamped out conclusively for a person to stand any chance of inner peace, because hope only lifts you up higher for the eventual fall. The Stoics advise us to take a different path. To be calm, one has to tell oneself something very dark. It will be terrible. I might have to go to prison. The lump really could be malign. I probably will be fired and humiliated. My friends almost certainly will succeed. But, a huge, consoling, stoic but, one must keep in mind that one will, nevertheless, be okay. Okay, because in the end, as Marcus Aurelius said, we are each of us stronger than we think. Prison won't be fun, nor will losing one's job or being made a laughingstock, but one will get through it. Stoicism emboldens us against the worst fate can throw at us. And if you really, really can't take it, suicide is always an option. The Stoics mention this repeatedly. Here is Seneca. Can you no longer see a road to freedom? It's right in front of you. You need only turn over your wrists. To build up an impression of one's own resilience, the Stoics suggested one regularly rehearse worst-case scenarios. For example, twice a year, one should take off one's smart clothes, get into some dirty rags, sleep on a rug in the kitchen floor, and eat only stale bread and rainwater from an animal's bowl. And thereby, you'll make an amazing discovery. As Marcus Aurelius put it, almost nothing material is needed for a happy life, for he who has understood existence. Another subject of interest to the Stoics was anger. Romans were a bad-tempered lot. The Stoics wanted to calm them down, but they did so by an unusual route, by intellectual argument. They proposed that getting angry isn't something you do by nature because you have a Latin temper or are somehow inherently hot-blooded. It's the result of being stupid, of having the wrong ideas about life. Anger stems when misplaced hope smashes into unforeseen reality. We don't shout every time something bad happens to us, only when it's bad and unexpected. For example, you never shout just because it started raining, even though rain can be horrible, because you've learned to expect rain. The same should apply to everything. Don't only expect rain, expect betrayal, infamy, sadism, theft, humiliation, lust, greed, spite. One will stop being so angry when one learns the true facts of the misery of life. The wise person should aim to reach a state where simply nothing could suddenly disturb their peace of mind. Every tragedy should already be priced in. We're going to leave you with the most beautiful remark that Seneca made, just as Nero's guards were grabbing him and shoving him into a bathroom where he was meant to take a sharp knife and kill himself. His wife Polina and two children were panicking, weeping, clinging to his cloaks. But Seneca turned to them, pulled a weary smile at them, and simply said, What need is there to weep over parts of life? The whole of it calls for tears. We have much to learn from the Stoics. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com.